What happens when two children from different sides of the galactic tracks grow up together as best friends, both join the Academy to join the Empire, but then one joins the Rebel Alliance? What would it be like to be a Star Wars Imperial officer, growing up believing that your Empire is the only way to bring stability and peace to the galaxy, and then watch Alderaan be destroyed? And can you have a Star Wars romance that doesn't include the words, I know? Riki and I talk about all that as we explore the Claudia Gray Star Wars novel, Lost Stars. All that more after a commercial break, we have no control over. Welcome back. My name is Matthew. I'm your host. As we're doing these days during the strike, we are talking about Star Wars media and Star Wars related media but not the actual on-screen content. And a lot of that is some of the great books. And Riki Hayashi, who's been a regular co-host and guest on this podcast, recently told me that he was reading one of my absolute favorite of the Star Wars books, Lost Stars by Claudia Gray. So, Riki, I'm so glad we could have you on here. Um, and let's just kind of just jump right in by saying, like, what was it you loved about this book that made you want to say, hey, we should be talking about this? You talked about all that other stuff, Matthew. And then the very last thing I think you said was a romance. Yep, and that's that's what I'm here for. I'm I, I wouldn't even call it a guilty pleasure because that implies mm-hmm. that I don't enjoy it or that I try to hide it. Mm-hmm. I just love romance, like rom coms, when they yeah. are done well. I think rom coms get maligned because so many of them are bad, but a well done romance, like I am totally here for it. And this is a well done romance. It is a well done Star Wars novel. We, we talked about Bloodline um, earlier this year, mm-hmm. and I'm just, I'm stunned. I think I need to now go read some other Claudia Gray things. I think she's done one more Star Wars novel, but she's uh, written a heck of a lot of other things, right? She's actually done a total of, I believe, six, five oh, that have been published, oh. and a number of the other ones, they've all tied into things we've read. Uh, Claudia Gray has written Lost Stars. Uh, Bloodline, which uh, Riki and I have also talked about. Leia, Princess of Alderaan, which sets up a lot of the stuff that we've talked about. Uh, Master and Apprentice, which is a great, great book about Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan early in their adventures. And then also the High Republic book, Into the High Republic books, Into the Dark, The Fallen Star. She likes talking about stars that do bad things. And then um, Star Wars The High Republic Adventures Quest of the Jedi, which is a comic book. So, which I believe is not yet published this year, or maybe published soon. So, yeah, she's been a very prolific author. And I think there's a lot of her great stuff to read. And I think this is one of her best. And I I agree with you. There's so much... there, There is a lot of the other stuff that I love, especially the moral questions and the world building. But this was one of the first Star Wars novels that I read. And it really grabbed me, I think in part because... The romance was written so well. And I'm like you. I love romances. I love rom-coms. I think this is something different, which I also love, which is the kind of star-crossed lover's story, the often romantic tragedy or like, will romance survive? And I agree with you that I think sometimes one of the reasons why they're denigrated is that sometimes they're not great. I also think there's an awful lot of misogyny that goes into it in terms of like, well, romance is seen as like the chick lit kind of side of of things and stuff like that. And I think it's really awesome that romance, I think there's been a lot of stuff about how rom-coms are getting more attention, romance is getting more attention, romance novels are getting more attention. 
uh, both the bodice ripper kind and the non-bodice ripper kind. And I, I don't know too much about the legacy uh, parts of the universe, uh, of the, the uh, extended universe legacy stuff. My understanding, though, is that very little of it was written by women, and that because it was written, it was thought to be an audience mostly to young boys and young men, romance plots were often sidelined or often weren't well done. Some people are going to yell at me about Luke and Mara Jade, and that's fine. Maybe there's some good stuff in there. But a lot of the stuff I've read from that era, the women were terribly written. And I think this book just felt like such a fresh breath of fresh air to me because the women characters were so much better. And the romance was done. Like, I was rooting for them. And there were scenes like the romantic tension building, the like, will they kiss? And when they do, the the, the sexual tension, the romantic tension, it was just, it was so good. Yeah, Luke and Mara Jade. Um, I, I don't even remember the romance. They they get married in, mm-hmm. in Legends. But I don't really remember the romance. I think it was just presented as a... Like, they are two Jedi, and at the time, Mara Jade was uh, on the dark side. So it was like this, you know, kind of the battling Jedi mm-hmm. fall in love type of thing through combat and then through understanding and reconciliation. But the writing for it was never really memorable. Yeah. And when it comes to that, I think, um, like, Obi-Wan Kenobi in Clone Wars is is just better. Yeah. From a, from a romance standpoint. Whether you're whether you're talking about uh, the the Duchess Satine or kind of flirting with Asajj, Asajj Ventress, right? I, I, I was going to say time. I was going to say Darth Maul. I think Obi Wan's kind of a slut in the universe, which I say is a very positive term, um, especially if you'd master an apprentice and some of his other books. But yeah, no, I I I agree with you there. That there's been some fun flirting on screen, uh, but not much in the earlier books. And yeah, I think it's part of what I love about this one so much. And the the thing about this novel is that this is a young adult novel, mm-hmm. right? That, that's my understanding is that that's what the target audience is. And I don't really know what that means anymore. Yeah. Um, but the the two characters, the two main characters. So so let's talk about that. The two main characters are uh, well, Sienna. Oh, sorry. If I, even before that, why don't we do a quick uh, plot summary? Just because I think yeah, some yeah. people have read the book. A lot of people won't have. Uh, and I'll I'll just also say yeah, I, I heard that it was YA after I'd read the book. I would have not thought that while reading it. It's I grew 500 up, pages. I grew up in the days of Judy Bloom and Beverly Clearly and Beverly Cleary, and like to me, so YA I think has advanced a lot more the since yeah. those days. So the book starts on this very out of the way planet called Jellicon, where it is eight years after. The uh, end of the Republic and the beginning of the Empire, basically eight years after Revenge of the Sith, the movie, and this this planet is now being brought into the Empire. And to a lot of the kids at that time, this is the most, <clears throat> and to a lot of the parents, this is great because their planet has had warfare, it's had incredible lack of resources, it's had, had fighting between these two different groups of colonists who arrived at different times, and... You know, as I said before on this and other podcasts, you know, part of the reason why people turn to authoritarians, you know, Mussolini made the trains run on time after long periods of chaos, which the Clone Wars and their aftermath were. People are really drawn to law, to order and the Empire arrives 
and it's all this glory and wonder and these two young kids especially who are from the two different sides of the tracks uh one dad lives down in the valley they're the poor kind of um very traditional very honor based and then the newer people who are richer they live up on the mountains um one kid from each of those fan from each of those groups is both super super excited about the chance to see the imperial ships and to get to learn more about them and the girl from down in the valley her name is Sienna Ray or Sienna Sienna Ree and then um his name is Thane uh uh his name is Thane. Ricky's going to tell me in a second what his full name is, because his full name is awesome. I just remembered his first name being Thane. Oh, Thane Kyrell. Thane Kyrell, great name. Basically, he's from the kind of older, the, the uh, more aristocrat groups, more recent immigrants. He sees her getting teased because she knows so much about the um, ships, which he recognizes. He comes to her defense. They're about to get beaten up by these group of kids when who comes to their rescue? Grand Moff Tarkin, who's kind of wandering around, sees it happen because he's the Imperial representative. There's a great kind of back and forth where you see that, like, he was a very charming man, like evil and terrible. But he, he you know, he would have a very high charisma score the way a lot of villains probably do. And... He kind of like plants this idea, he kind of like rewards their strategic thinking for how they kind of plant, you know, had this fight as well as their honor and says, you two should join the empire. You should be pilots. You could really go far. And so the two of them spend most of their childhood training to be pilots, getting ready for it, helping each other with school, learning a bit about each other. Because I said they're from the opposite sides of the track kind of a thing. Growing up, and then at 16, both together, getting to go to the highest Imperial Academy in the world, in the galaxy, which is the one on Coruscant. They arrive there, they have a lot of adventures. There are some moments that kind of pull them apart, and then kind of put them back together. One of which really involves coming to realize that Thane has a much higher level of distrust of authority. And there's an incident where... He thinks that the, the people running the academy are kind of screwing the two of them to try and divide them. She can't really believe the idea that the Empire would ever do something like that. He thinks it's possible. And that kind of sets up the somewhat different tracks they're both going on. Because he's still very much in the Empire, but he's starting to have doubts. He's starting to be more cynical. For him, it's, the Empire is about opportunity. Whereas for her, it's really about honor. It's about duty. It's about making the galaxy a better place. As they're coming up, they, they graduate, they both go into Imperial Fleet, um, and they come to realize that they have these romantic feelings for each other. Again, like, the romantic tension is beautifully done. There's lots of scenes of the, like, you know, both of them misinterpret each other, and they're not sure if the other likes them or what's going to happen. And finally, they get together, they have their first kiss, and it's wonderfully done, and circumstances start to divide them, especially as the rebellion starts to grow. And as the rebellion gets worse and worse, uh, as the rebellion starts to fight back more and more, um, she is just not able to see them as anything but terrorists. He mostly sees them as terrorists, but also starts to have a bit of sympathy for them, uh, in, uh, you know, for the idea of the Empire isn't that great either. Up until the moment of the first Star Wars movie, the Battle of Yavin, and they are each basically either directly witnessing or very closely witnessing the aftermath of the destruction of the first Death Star. Oh, I'm sorry, of first of the destruction of Alderaan, and then the destruction of the first Death Star. They're both horribly shaken by this. For her, though, she comes to believe that as horrible as it was to destroy Alderaan, 
that it had to be done as a way of saying, look, if we do this one terrible thing, hopefully it'll stop all the rebellion and thus save far more lives um, uh, in years in, in the years to come. And I'll say reading that, I never had quite associated, the first time I read it, I had not directly connected that to the American justification for dropping nuclear bombs on Japan, but most recently having thought about that a lot because of Oppenheimer and the Gojiro movies I've been watching, that connection was very much in my head. She's able to justify that, especially because she kind of sees like, well, but they blew up the Death Star in which a lot of people, including some of her best friends, were killed. He, though, starts to really wrestle with it. Um, after the Battle of Hoth, he comes into contact with Wedge and Tilly's. A lot of your favorite characters pop up in some version of the other. He winds up joining the Rebellion. Uh, and then you get to see the wars going forward through both of their eyes. And I'm sorry, it's actually at the Battle of Hoth that she realizes that he has switched sides. He switched sides before that. Um, and and they, they keep having these moments of almost getting together and then and then being pulled apart again. He actually deserts before he's ready to join the Rebellion. She goes to find him, thinking she might arrest him, thinking she might try to talk him back in. They wind up making love for the first time in a sort of like, we, we're so far apart, but we're so close together moment. And then she decides to, to, to basically fake his suicide to help cover for him so that he can basically desert. And it's the first lie she's ever told. Uh, she comes from a culture where honor is very, very important. And it, it, she feels so bad about this. And especially when she realizes he's joined the rebellion, she promises she's never going to do it again. Um, they have more adventures through the course of the war. They keep trying to almost get back together, but they quite can't. They quite never can quite see it from each other's eyes. And so finally, we get to we get to the Battle of Endor. More terrible things happen. Um, and and finally, we cut to some of the battles that happen later. If you've read the Aftermath books or heard them referred to, the Battle of Jeddah. Um, the Battle of Jeddah is kind of the last climactic battle during which the, the Empire Jakku. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I confused those two. The Battle of Jakku. Thank you. Uh, and uh, if, if you ever wondered, why was there a crashed Star Destroyer on the surface of Jakku that Ray could kind of go scavenging? Here's your answer. Uh, during the course of this battle, she's been given command of Star Destroyer. Thane leads a group of troops to try and take over the Star Destroyer. She decides that the only thing she can do is to crash the Star Destroyer into the planet. Uh, he tries to talk her out of this and then tries to rescue her. They have this moment where they're like, they're, they're angry at each other, but they love each other. And they're both going to die. And finally, he, he manages to get her off the ship. And in a move that I thought was really kind of beautifully done, it doesn't end with, you know, everything being okay. She doesn't join the rebellion at the end. She, she's come to understand how much the empire abandoned her and that, and that she was wrong many steps of the way and that the empire was wrong, but she's still, and she kind of regrets a lot of that, but we end with Thane visiting her in prison when she's about to go on trial for war crimes. And it sounds like Thane is going to be able to make her get a good deal. And the hope that the hope certainly is that they're going to be able to be together going forward, but it, that's their last scene together. And then it ends with uh, one of the other characters, Nash, talking to some people about this new secret Imperial fleet that's starting to form way deep in the nebulas in the Outer Rim, which we know to be eventually become the First Order. Oh, is that where he's going? Okay. That makes that probably makes more sense. I thought he was going to Exegol for some reason. But no, that that's probably correct. 
Yeah. In 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 the aftermath books, they sketch out that like there's a bunch of groups waiting in various parts that will much later get called to Exegol. Okay. Yeah, Exegol is kind of a mess because I've also read that the Sith acolytes like literally use dark side magic to just like conjure the ships up. To yeah. Not actually like <laughs> shipyards. So this was written, and I'll say this book was written fairly early in the in the Disney era. I believe it was before Rogue One, because the events it talks about, like she's on the ship that helps capture uh, Princess Leia's ship. And the way it's written sounds very much like the author had not yet seen Rogue One. And so like the Star Wars, for the most part, is doing a very good job, for the most part, of keeping solid canonicity across things. But where books line up with movies and with other books, it isn't always the perfect. So there's certainly some stuff about the way some of these stories play out that doesn't quite fit. But it's it, it it's close enough that I think it's pretty easy to kind of hand wave and, and be fine with it. Yeah. I mean, just the, the fact yeah. that she doesn't mention the Battle of Scarif at all, yeah. which the Devastator, Vader's flagship, does show up at, at, at the very end. Right. And then from there... They pursue the Tantive Four, right? To Tatooine, right? So yeah, so I think you wanted to talk about the two main characters as a place place to start. So let's do that. Yeah, first off, Thane Kyrell is the most epic name of all time. Mm-hmm. Like Star Wars has a lot of interesting names. You know, the whole idea of like Skywalker. Uh, this one we have uh, Nash Windrider, right? Like mm-hmm. these types of names are very common in Star Wars. And then you get the completely out there names like Sheev, Palpatine. Mm-hmm. But Thane Kyrell, like that that's a name you can really bite into and would like fit into many other mm-hmm. sci-fi or possibly even real world franchises. I, I just love it. As a name, yeah. Sienna, Sienna, I wasn't quite as on board. Like, it's there's nothing wrong with it. But I just love reading and or saying the name Thane Kyrell. It sounds like someone has used that name in a D&D campaign. Like, Ooh. definitely has that kind of, like, a little Maybe bit on I the will. edge of fantasy. <laughs> yeah, sure. You should do it. You should do it. He's a great character. Uh, yeah. And then I- the romance part, like... Like I said, this is a young adult novel, and I, I, you know, I haven't really read much young adult being so mm-hmm. far removed from that age. So maybe I had a misconception or a misremembering of what that kind of novel is. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't understand, like, what makes this young adult. Like, I thought it was just a fine novel, quite yeah. frankly. I mean, like I said, I my understanding is that YA has aged up quite not. I should better phrase that. It's not that YA has aged up. It's still supposed to be for the same age ranges. It's that I think that um, the content that is deemed acceptable for teenagers is significantly more advanced than it was in my childhood, and that's probably in your childhood. That's um, fair, yeah. And, but I really appreciate, like, I really liked the way that the romance played out, and, and also the sexuality of it, in that, I mean, there's nothing like, you know, there's no smut in the book by any means, but there's obviously some moments of eroticism and of... Clearly what it's talking about is a sense that I think a lot of us can probably identify with where you love someone like crazy, you're also fighting with them like crazy, and there's an extent to which there's a desire to physically connect with them, to intimately connect with them in a way to kind of like shut out all the things you're fighting about. And that 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 sometimes that can be healing in a way, and sometimes it can be kind of like the, the death knell of like, 
we're doing this to kind of try and sweep the problems under the rug. And like, I mean, I can get in all sorts of level of like romance counseling here about toxicity or healthiness, but I just, I, I haven't often seen books and certainly none in the Star Wars universe that really deal with that level of like having this very strong, intimate, loving connection with someone and wanting to physically express this almost as kind of a result. There's a way of like getting away from these fundamental conflicts you're having. Yeah, it's it's fairly unique in Star Wars. Like we mentioned the whole Luke and mm -hmm. Mara thing, and that just never it never felt like a good romance. It felt almost faded. Like because mm -hmm. that in that era of novels, they did introduce like a new force sensitive woman in like every new different series or book, and mm -hmm. then like her and Luke would have a flirtation, and then most of them would like leave. Because they, like, touched the dark side and couldn't deal with it and had to get out or die or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then Mara, Mara was the only one who came back because Timothy Zahn was so popular and he got more mm. novels. So that, I mean, he's the one who created her. So that's kind of why I feel like he ended up with Mara. That makes but sense. There, that, that whole era just had, like, none of those Luke plus X romances felt good or, like, yeah. well-written. And then, of course, the other thing we have is um, Han and Leia, which was already kind of settled by the time we get to those uh, right. Legends novels. So we didn't really get the romance, per se. We just kind of got them in married life. Some of my favorite of those books, I think I call it the uh, Legacy Canon, the Legends Canon, obviously, um, are the Darth Bane books, which are, for the most part, I think very good books. They go really into the history and the ideology and the philosophy of the Sith. And answer a lot of questions about the rule of two. Every woman in it, though, especially every woman Jedi, a force user, is a femme fatale who's who's you know written in this very purple language. They never walk into a room. They like you know set. I don't think they sashay, but like they use other words like that. You know, it's always about their body type and their sexuality and how they use it to like you know weave spells of power over unsuspecting men and things like that. And it's just. Like, that can be fun, and that can be fine in a book, but it just, it it felt very much like a man writing a woman character. And that, some men have written great women characters, but it can go very badly, and it felt like this hit a lot of that. So yeah, this I think these books were just, it, it was just a really nice change for that. And I, I think the idea of having two characters who are on two different sides is very interesting, but often it's told as like brothers or siblings or father and son. And so I thought this was also a really nice change to make it about these kids who grew up with the same ideals and then go in such different directions. And to have them be present at all of these pivotal moments, like mm -hmm. Yavin, Hoth, yep. Endor. So that's like original trilogy, like three focal battles. Yep. And then Jakku which is the pivotal yep. battle and the whole aftermath post-Return of the Jedi novels, where and even, even the though, Empire like, finally failed. Like, that's where the Empire falls, I believe, is right. the Battle of Jakku. Yeah, and, like, there are times where I feel it feels a little bit on the nose that they're in so many of these poems, but it is fun to see those things from other sides. So, for example, she controls the... Um, She's the one who, like, controls the, uh, not Gravity Well, what's the name of it? The tractor beam that catches Princess Leia's ship at the beginning. And then she's part of the group that goes to rescue Darth Vader after he's been sent off <laughs> hurtling at the end of Death Star. And, like, yeah. 
later both uh, Thane is part of the group that discovers the Imperial fleet massing somewhere far away from where the Death Star is. And so, like, you know, yeah, we, they're, they're involved in all these little moments. Yes, so Thane, he gets, after after Alderaan, Thane gets sent to Dantooine. He's part of, part of a scouting group that goes to Dantooine, which is the mm, fake or right. old rebel base that Leia gives up in the interrogation. Yeah. And I just, lo- like, those are the kinds of Easter eggs that really make me happy in Star Wars, because, like, mm-hmm. that exists. She named Dantooine, and they're like, it's too far for a demonstration, but obviously they're still going to send some ships out there right. to check it out. And, like, who went out there? Well, Thane went out there. Yeah. Or, uh, I believe, Sienna at uh, Cloud City. She and her crew are the ones who disable the Millennium Falcon's hyperdrive. Yep. Yep. Initially. And so when Vader speaks to Admiral Piet and says, have your men disabled the hyperdrive on the ship? That's her. <laughs> she yeah. did that. Yeah. And, re- and there's, a, there's a moment when the, the, the Falcon uh, hyper, hyperdrives away where she's like, oh, I'm dead. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so she gets to wit- that moment where we all expect Vader to kill Admiral Piet, and he doesn't. She's one of the part of the crew who gets to be there. Yeah. So it's very, like, in a way, this is, they're kind of like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of Star Wars original yes, trilogy movies. Yes, Like, they get to see all this, so. Because they're, they're there at all the pivotal moments and do, like, one of the things that is mentioned. Right, exactly, exactly. So let's talk about each of the characters individually, because I think that it's it's... The romance is great, but also I do I do think there's something so powerful about seeing this idea of like the star-crossed lovers, but also the idea of the people on two different sides. And I want to start with her character because I do think there has been, particularly with stuff like um, uh, Andor, but also some of the other uh, things we've seen. Rebels did a little bit of this. There, there's been this movement towards humanizing and giving us a human face, at least of the people who are in the empire, you know, and that we started out in the 1970s with just, they're all jackbooted, white armored, faceless goons uh, with, you know, English accented, you know, white male officers who are just doing terrible things all the way to we're rooting for a romance for a girl who's justifying the destruction of Alderaan. Um, What did you think of her character and how she was portrayed? Didn't like it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, I didn't like that part. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's fine to write characters that make these arguments because you you want to know, like, the audience wants to know why people stay with the Empire. Why do they continue right. to do these things? So someone has to voice it. And it's, it's really um, more her best friend uh, from the Academy, Jude, mm-hmm. who initially, like, plants this idea in her head. Right. And then Jude is on the Death Star, Death Star 1, when it gets destroyed. So she dies. So I think for Sienna, it is as much like, well, Jude made this interesting logical argument and then died. Like, now I'm pissed. So I yeah. think that, that's what motivates her more than, like, the logic of the argument is that she's really upset that her best friend died. Yeah. Which is, I, I, I find that more understandable. Like, I just really don't like the... The argument, and maybe like this is part of me being Japanese. You know, you mentioned that it's yeah. a parallel. Alderaan is a parallel to the atomic bombs. Of the part of the justification was 
to make Japan surrender so that they didn't have to send troops in. And like, it would cost us hundreds of thousands of lives and troops to invade Japan. So yeah, maybe in that sense, it, it upsets me a little, the mm-hmm. justification of uh, civilian, you know, in my mind, terrorism Yeah, to, to end a war, or in this case, to stop a war. The other character that's interesting here is Nash. Nash Windrider mm-hmm. is from Alderaan, right? And he's yeah. another... They're, they're all Imperial cadets who become officers. And he... I don't know. Like, he takes a dark turn. Yeah. And so I think he is also used as a way to soften Sienna in a mm-hmm. way. Like, they're both, like, fully on board. Like, yeah, Alderaan is fine. Like, that Empire yeah. should have done that. But he, because I think of his heritage being from Alderaan, takes it to a much, much darker place, maybe to justify to the yeah. Empire that mm-hmm. he can continue to exist. Like, hey, I'm not like them. Those Organa traders, like I'm fully yep. on board. I hate those people. I hate myself. I hate Alderaan. Like that's how he really acts. And I think it's very intentional, especially because at the end, you know, Sienna is saying like <clears throat> one of the things we learn about her is that her honor is so important to her. And I'll I'll say something a bit more specifically about that in a bit. But that even with that, that she does feel like at the end, she's willing to say the Empire was wrong and to in her mind, like, be a part of this new republic in whatever way she can, uh, even though she's not going to, like, officially, like, you know, like, join the rebellion or anything like that. Uh, Whereas Nash, like I said, he's still part of whatever the the rump of the empire is going to be. And I think, I think you got it exactly right. I think the, the, the character Jude who comes up with that, she is presented as, I think, a very, like, numbers and logic before emotion character. And I think she, she reminds me a lot of Entrapta. Uh, for anyone who's seen Shira, uh, and and somewhat maybe autistic coded, I think not too clearly, and I don't ever want to kind of put I something think, like that. I think uh, it's, I think it's, I don't know. I, I thought she was. So. Uh, yeah, I, I think definitely the coding is there. I think you know, it's it's. I think it's too easy to just say they are this when we're talking about a, a world that is just completely different and we don't know. Sure. You know, but yeah, I think she's very coded that way. I think it, you're correct. I'm probably underselling that. And and so when she comes up for this justification. I, to me, it's that I, I think you're right. It's not, it's not that I think that that convinces her. It's that I think it gives her a justification. It gives her an excuse because she's caught in this horrible situation where her entire life has been built around the idea that the Empire is noble and worthy and good. And she is truly horrified to watch the destruction of this planet. And she can't put she she can't square the circle. And the justification gives her a way to square the circle so that she doesn't have to challenge her core belief. Yeah, and to be clear to everyone, the justification in the novel is that you know Alderaan obviously had much of the leadership of the rebellion. Like they knew at this point that Leia and and Bail were traitors, right? And they believed that there was a large network of traitors on Alderaan supporting them. Basically, like <clears throat> not the whole planet, right? But yeah. But that the planet was essentially in rebellion in the Empire's mind. And this this is I'm saying this from their perspective. And by destroying Alderaan with the Death Star and showing this power, it would it would show the rest of the rebellion that there's no point in fighting. You can't fight against this. So they right. were preventing a larger conflict, a larger war from even starting from taking place. Right. And I mean, if you think about that from like any kind of 
actual like human emotional perspective. Like uh, we've talked about this in the past that the destruction of Alderaan was a a catalyzing moment for the galaxy where other planets mm-hmm. said, "Whoa, that's not cool. You can't do right. that." And what's to stop them from doing that to us? Like we have some rebels on this planet. Not yeah. all of us are, but like are they going to blow us up next? And and so I don't know. I that's why I don't like the argument because I think the counter argument of Alderaan catalyzing the rebellion makes a lot more sense. Yeah. But and may, and maybe it's a case like you said like the <clears throat> shock of it in the moment like Jew dies like not a day after saying mm-hmm. this to Sienna. So maybe with more time she would have come out come around to a different yeah. perspective. So her like not just the anger of Jude dying but I think her of her opinion being frozen in time by yeah. her death is what really like sticks for Sienna. Yeah, she can't argue it with her, and as I'll, I'll talk about in a minute, it, betrayal is so verboten for her. Yeah, and it would be sort of be betraying her friend's memory, you know. And she tries to talk with Thane about it, but after this point, he yeah. leaves. He he deserts, <laughs> and so the only person she has to talk to about it is Nash, and he's yeah. just kind of gone off the deep end. And, and I think one thing that's really powerful is, and, and this is where I think we see her journey in a way that Nash doesn't do, is that part of her commitment to that is that by the time of Empire and the fighting continuing and getting even worse, she firmly believes that the Empire tried this tactic. Yeah. It was proven to be wrong. And so it could never, that the Empire would never do it again. And that it is when... She learns about the the construction of the last of the second Death Star. A, a real break occurs for her, and and and, it, and yes. we get some great mental insights into her, where she says that I, I no longer believe in the Empire. She says that she'll probably leave when her commission is up, but that she cannot break her promise. And now she feels that like like when she's fighting because she has some leadership roles still, she's fighting to protect her fellow soldiers. She's not fighting for the Emperor anymore. But she still yeah. can't bring herself. And this is a quote that I want to read because I think it is so powerful and says so much about the part of why I love this book so much is not only does this help me understand why people would stay in the Empire, but it is so relatable. Because I think we see these same dynamics in our own world all the time. And what she said is, uh, this is coming from her point of view, while she would never, and this is soon after she's realized that they have built the second Death Star. However, while she would never contemplate joining the rebels herself, she now understood how Thane could have done so. Quote, thinking to herself, This isn't about whether or not we've kept faith with the Empire, Thane had said to her as he held her close in the fortress. It's about whether the Empire has kept faith with us. And that's because that's his argument. Is that like the, the agreement we had with the Empire has dissolved because they lied to us. They broke faith with us. But for her, and she her thought continues... An oath of loyalty remained binding, even when the subject proved unworthy. It simply became more bitter. And like I said, all the stuff that I read about this, all I kept thinking about people who will stay utterly dedicated to a political or religious or like any kind of, you know, it, it could be like a political belief or it could be like, no, this was the best pitcher for the Mets for this year. When all the statistics, all the data, all the arguments are going against them and they just cannot they cannot accept that they are wrong, and so they'll keep squaring circles and finding justifications. And and I think that all relates to our world very much, clearly on one particular side. I think it can be found in almost any direction. But then this line, when I read this line, 
I, I've been a marital counselor for quite some time. I've been married and divorced. And what I heard in this line is the horrible and I think abusive advice that churches and conservatives so often give to people, especially women, about you need to stay in a marriage even if your partner is abusing you or is otherwise breaking your vows. You know, this idea that if they are, even if they are not worthy of 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 you, even if they are not worthy of the vow that you have made to them, that you still must honor the vow you made. And I, knowing Claudia Gray, I think there was some intentionality behind it because she knows she, these are issues she really cares about. And there's just something so heartbreakingly sad about her perspective of even though the empire is this horrible thing, I made a promise to stay with them. And so I have to honor that promise. And it's romantic and it's sad and it's tragic, but it's also like she allows herself to blind herself to the fact that by doing that, she's continuing to help the empire kill more people. And, and I, I kind of want to shake her or yell at her for that, you know, and it's what to me, it's what makes her such an interesting character is that she's not just the perfect, oh, how sad that she got misled. She digs in her heels even when she knows that's wrong. And it, it makes me hate her and it makes me love her as a character and it makes me just want to turn every page and read more. Yeah, Sienna is strongly dri driven by loyalty and honor, mm -hmm. as you said. And then Thane, I would say he's driven by justice. Yeah. Right? Like, he sees the destruction of Alderaan, and then right after, like I said, that he gets sent to Dantooine. And I, I believe, like, is it on that planet where he sees the Empire mistreating slaves, or just, like, having yep. slaves, slave yep. labor? And he's like, what, what the heck? Like, that's, we're not supposed to be doing that. So th those are, like, the two breaking point incidents for him. Mm -hmm. And he decides, you know, as he expresses to Sienna, like that the Empire is not worthy of his of his loyalty because right. they are committing injustices. Yeah. And I, I think in the end, like for me as the audience, it, it is pretty clear, I think, that he's right and she's wrong in that in that kind of idea. But. But but it's done in that way, especially when having met them as little kids where I, I don't I, I can't I can't agree with what she's doing. But I 100% believe that that's what the character would think was right. Yeah. Because of how and, she's raised and because of what she, everything she's been taught. And I think it's fine for a character like Sienna to go through this. As you said, like, we hate her for it when she's justifying it this way. And then when she comes around at the end, we, we love her. And when, when Thane expresses love, we love her. Like, I, I think it's very well written in that way. Mm -hmm. That we can go on this journey with them. Obviously, like if you take snapshots of her character at certain points, it's like, well, she's terrible. Yeah. But th that's the kind of journey that makes it worth going on with a character. Yeah, for sure. And it, it just makes it so much more interesting than, you know, a mustache twirling villain can be fun uh, just, you know, to have the person to hate or the person to be afraid of, you know, or the person to laugh at, whatever it is. But to me, like, like I said, I, this book feels very much the same kind of spirit as Andor, you know, and uh, it's been out long enough that I don't mind too many spoilers, but I'll try to be a little bit vague about this here. Um, you know, in Andor, we get introduced to two different Imperial characters who are both pretty, pretty terrible, but are also like things happen that make us sympathetic to them in ways. And I think they're not the same as what happens with Sienna because she is a very much more relatable and sympathetic character and becomes, like I said, someone we're rooting for at various points in time. But but I think it's all the same idea of 
let's let's break down this idea of good guys and bad guys uh, and, and actually really trouble it somewhat. Yeah, I, I think Andor is a good comparison also because of the the way that these characters are new characters and, and like everything is happening in the background mm-hmm. of the main story, right? Like we, we've talked about how it hits the major, the inflection points of the original trilogy. And yet I, I think Sienna meets uh, Tarkin a couple of times. Well, they both meet, meet him at the beginning, but he, mm-hmm. he meets her again as an officer. Uh, Thane is recruited by Wedge. And mm-hmm. maybe talks to like one of the generals, yep, in in one of the scenes. But there's never like this moment where like, oh, like now you're buddies with Luke Skywalker and Han Solo, and you're in the main cast. Like, no, they they, they never are. Yeah, they're always they're always background characters, and yet it's compelling. And I think it adds so much in the same way that Andor is adding to this pre-rebellion period of like, oh, okay, like all oh, this this all makes sense. Yeah, in some ways, the way that Tarkin remembers them, it's not played out as though, like, he's their best friend. It's more just, like, this is, again, a sign of why he was such a good officer and why he would instill such incredible loyalty in the people who worked for him. And part of it was fear, to be sure. But part of it was, I think, you know, like, when they've run into him later, they have to, like, remind him. They have to give him, like, a little bit more search text for the search box, you know? They have to say, like, hey, remember you met us when we were kids? And then he's like, oh, yes, of course. And... He's friendly towards them, and he's he's supportive towards them. And he's like, well, you're clearly... He makes a joke about how I must be much better at Imperial recruiting than I thought I would be. And you can just... Like, you read that, and I want to die for Tarkin. You know, I want to be like, oh my god, what a great leader you are. And then immediately you're like, no, no, wait, that's horrible. You're terrible. But it, 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 I just love things like that, because, yeah, it, it gives us a little more Wedge's story. It gives, us a little, it gives us a little more background of what's going on on Hoth, and reminds us that actually while you know Han and Luke and all of our heroes were all going off to Dagobah and Bespin and then to Tatooine to try to free him from uh Carbonite and all that that more battles were happening and like they just make these references to like battles that keep happening that the war keeps growing and growing in ways that we never got to see on screen but make sense and remind us like the war wasn't just happening when Luke or Han or Leia was on screen yeah Tar- Tarkin doesn't get a lot of, I guess we'll call it page time, as it were, mm-hmm. but he is absolutely devastatingly effective at this in, in a way, you know, it's comical when leaders are bad at this, where right. they get people's names wrong or like don't even bother and, and like in Star Wars, I suppose, like call them like TK1487 or whatever. Right. But he, he, Tarkin remembers details. Like, as soon as they jog his, he or she, I think at that point, only her, mm-hmm. jogs his memory. He's like, ah, yes, you know, Jellicon, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, like, remembers small details of their encounter. It's like, oh, yeah, exactly. Like, as you said, that's how a good leader, and unfortunately, Tarkin's a good, good leader, inspires people to want to perform well for them to get more of his attention and to advance. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. I also just like how, like I said, there's a couple like minute details that people can quibble about. But in terms of tone, I just feel like it fits in so well with what Bad Batch has done, even what Solo has done, even though that's not my favorite Star Wars movie. Um, I have always been fascinated by this period between the Clone Wars and 
the the original trilogy, and I feel like we're just doing so much more to fill in that gap of what was happening in those years and why did the Empire have such success? You know, because I think part of the point of A New Hope is that the Empire has been able to rule up till now through a combination of fear and loyalty. And it's because that's starting to wear off that they, in part because memories of the Clone Wars are fading enough that people are starting to rebel. Uh, but here, just, you know, just those opening scenes of seeing why these two kids are like, it, you said Thane is very focused on bully, on justice. I think you're right. He comes to help this girl who's not from like his group against people from his group because he doesn't like bullies. Like it's a very like Captain America kind of moment. And I think he that's why he joins the Empire. You know, I mean, it's a very classic like a cab kind of thing of the kid who like thinks the police are there to help stop bullies. And so he joins the police and then realizes like this is a terrible idea. But that's his motivation. And you really believe that's that the Empire could convince him that that's what they're doing. Yeah. Let's talk more about the romance, especially when they come back to Jellicon the mm -hmm. second time. Right? The first time after he deserts, they meet up. Yep. And then have like their I believe I believe they have their Bam Chica Bang Wow. Yep. And the then and it's like, all right, now we're done. You you go off. I have to go back to the Empire. You leave, and I will. Right. And Sienna reports that he committed. He died by suicide. I believe. Right. This is when she gets permission to go find him because she thinks he's deserted. She knows he's deserted. Yeah. But the second time is is beautiful. It is to me the the crux of this novel of this relationship. Mm -hmm. I cried. Yeah. Um. Her. Sienna's mother, back on Jellicon, is accused of embezzlement, I think. Yeah, she right? runs a mine. She had, yeah. and the, the family was very proud that she'd gotten this position. Uh, she's accused of embezzlement, and Sienna goes back to be with her family, and they, their people have a tradition when something happens, and this is shown at the beginning of the novel when they go to support some other family, that they they put like flag a flag out in front of their house, and mm -hmm. then other other people in the in the village or tribe like can come and plant their flag next to it to say we we stand with you we stand with your family, and it's a show of solidarity and support. Right. And no one comes and plants their flag, even though like they are very popular. Mm -hmm. They've been supportive of other families and should receive the same support back. But at this point, the Empire, they're so afraid of the Empire because the Empire that's accusing everyone of embezzlement, you've stolen from the Empire. We're mm -hmm. putting you on trial. It's going to be a show trial. You're guilty. And so no one comes to plant their flag. And she's there with her father alone in their house. And they hear someone plant a flag outside. It's so beautiful. It's Thane. Yeah. He's come back. He heard about her mother and he's come back, even though at this point he's like deep in the rebellion mm -hmm. and she could like easily turn him in. Yeah. And, and it was it was so beautiful. And one of the things I think is most important there is that this is not a tradition for all of Jellicon. This is only right. for the, the valley it's, it's, people. It's her family's tradition. Her right. And his family very much looks down on you know, it's very much a kind of like rich city folk versus like, you know, uh poor country folk and 
uh, they look down at it. They think that they're all hicks. They think they're all like these are silly traditions. And part of what she sh- what she sees when he does that is how much he'd been listening to her. Because one of the things that had really bothered her was that when he was trying to, exp- he didn't understand why she would want to stay in the empire. And she got really mad about that because she thought that what that showed was that he never really understood how important honor was to her. Like, how could he ever think she would leave the empire? And so there's this wonderful moment of her realizing, like, no, wait, he did listen to me. He did understand me. And I think that's also part of what allows her to start thinking about him in that way, to start thinking that maybe he has a point. Yeah, and he comes inside and speaks with her father and and kind of fumbles through the traditions, but again, like, shows that he has an understanding. Like, hey, I've never done this before. I believe I'm supposed to do this right. now. It's like, yes, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, and it's re- I, so that that was just I, I don't know I I can't I can't praise Claudia Gray enough in general but that mm-hmm. whole that whole scene just just had me had me going. It was really well done, and I think there's one other point of context that also matters so much, which is that not only is the Empire on the planet letting people know you shouldn't be standing with her, but when uh, Sienna first hears that her mother's in this trouble and she goes to her superior officer and says. I want to go and stand with my mother. She must be, you know, being framed. The officer's first question is like, are you saying the empi- that the justice, the imperial justice officer is wrong? And she, he's clearly framing it as though you are making this act of treason to stand, to try and think that your mother could be right and the empire could be wrong. And she goes there thinking that she is going to prove her superior wrong and prove everyone wrong. And eventually she comes to realize she can't stand with her mother and her mother doesn't even want her to do so because she's in the same position that their neighbors are. She has to go back and tell her superior officer, no, I believe now that my mother was guilty, even though everyone knows that she's not. It's very clear that everyone knows she's not, but because even she is not allowed to doubt the empire. And so I think it's just one more, like she's feeling this huge sense of personal betrayal of, and I think it's actually during that conversation uh, you know, during one of those conversations during this particular visit, when Thane says that about, you know, you're keeping faith with them, but they haven't kept faith with you. Yeah. Because in that, in that I, moment, it's very true. I think they even probably dangle a promotion in front of her or, or say like mm-hmm. she won't get a promotion if she, if she stands with her mother, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a thing that or even worse consequences, you know, demotion or something like that. Let's talk a bit about the Empire itself, because I think we also get a really interesting picture of sort of how the Empire works. Um, and we can talk about the court scene in that, but I want to start with like the the Academy, because one of the things we learn at the Imperial Academy is that the Empire really wants people to stop thinking themselves as parts of, you know, I'm from Alderaan, I'm from Jellicon, I'm from, you know, whatever planet, and to instead start thinking themselves as citizens of the Empire. And they go so far as they, they you know, at this point, uh, Thane and Celia aren't romantic with each other, but they're still so close and so best friends that the Empire kind of tries to frame them in this way to kind of make them fight against each other. And it, uh, it doesn't work at first until they kind of realize that that might be the case. He believes that she doesn't, and then that's what they fight about. Um, what do you think of, like, what the Empire's tactics were here and kind of what we learned about the Empire through all this? Isn't isn't this something that in fact uh, modern nations in our world do? 
Perhaps oh yeah. Even, perhaps even the United States is like this erasure of local identity. Mm-hmm. I, I, I can't think of specific examples, but I feel like I've heard this somewhere, whether it's like now or, or maybe like more historically, possibly. Mm-hmm. I, I guess it could make sense, like make more sense, like revolutionary war, like 13 colonies yep. that they did not, they did not want states to have like individual militias, right? And they wanted to have a unified colonial army. Right. So they had to kind of like break up state militias and mix them up and say, hey, no, 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 you're not fighting for Carolina. You're fighting for the United right. States. And I think it didn't really, it didn't really work because even up to the Civil War, you know, you had like the third Massachusetts regiment and the fourth Minnesota regiment. But I believe today, yeah, like you get, you get mixed and matched and they really try to break that up. And I, I think like, yeah, certainly a lot of citizenship stuff is like that. Um, almost every cult that I know about, you know, one of the first things that they try to get you to do is to kind of like abandon your names or things like that and to take on a new name. Uh, I think we see that a lot actually in like superhero movies and stuff like that, where you're supposed to like leave behind your your former identity and become this new person. Uh, certainly a lot of religious rituals can sometimes cause you to do that. Uh, yeah, I think it's a very tried and true method of... and And sometimes I think like... I think there can be some value in helping, whether it's like just a group of friends or a nation state or even the whole world. Like, yeah, I think like getting past some of like the sectarian line on a map differences and and seeing ourselves all as kind of, you know, global citizenry. I think there's something really great about that. I think when it becomes we're going to erase everything and just make you all the same. And by the way, you should all be the same, just like the primary majority group. That's pretty terrible. And and this here feels much more the same, much more the second one, especially in the ways like she has to keep hidden the whole time that she's got this bracelet uh, in memory of her dead sister. She was a twin, and her twin died at birth. Oh, um, yes. And she has to hide like so. There's all this stuff about how they have to hide anything that reminds them of their home, and I think that's where it's like, yeah, this is not being done for good reasons. This is being done as part of totalitar- totalitarianism. Yeah, big big roller in her energy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh yeah, that's a really good example. Rolaren, of course, is uh, she's the Bajoran officer in Star Trek: The Next Generation. And initially, when she comes on board, she tries to put on her Bajoran earring, and like, mm-hmm. no, 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 you can't do that. And then by the end of the first episode that establishes her character, they let her. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Yes, yeah, so I just, I just thought it was fun to kind of get to see that side of the Empire and to see like see the justice systems slowly become more and more corrupt and or at least be more and more open about how corrupt they are like because clearly i think at the time of tarkin at the time of you know when they they come to this planet they're wanting people to voluntarily join the empire they want people to believe that the empire is a good thing and that by the time of the rebellion all that's gone you know even a couple years before the rebellion we're now just in a stage of you know, obey or be killed. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting to me because for people, for these two characters from Jellicon, joining the Imperial Academy is like a very prestigious thing. And it's a chance to get away, to mm-hmm. shed, you know, even though Thane is from the upper class, it's still the upper class of Jellicon, which yeah. is like far, far off from Coruscant. Mm-hmm. So this is their chance to become worldly or ga- galactically 
and to find find adventure and possibly like find employment slash you know success within the empire yeah i think one of the things that's so interesting is how like the fact that they're from different worlds really matters on jellicon where it's very much a romeo and juliet story both of their families distrust each other and hate each other they get to the imperial academy and i think you know the fact that like coruscant people coruscant people look down on both of them in the same way kind of helps her to realize like he's actually not that much higher up than me we're all being looked down upon by these idiot snobs here. Um, but then the fact that at the end, it is still, you know, that that it's not the like the money or the circumstances, but the fundamental values of their two different societies, the the second waivers and the valley people, that that still divides them, you know, because it is still so much her her conception of honor and and duty and vows that keeps her from from making the step choice that he makes. Yeah. Oh. Well, I don't. I don't know what else to say right now. I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, go ahead. I was. It's, it's a great book. So we could. We totally can wrap it up there. But if you have one more thing to go, please do it. No, I think we've talked about it. I mean, I'm. I'm. St- I guess I'm. What What I want to say now is a again. This novel is amazing. Read mm-hmm. it. I'm going to go try to read other Claudia Gray novels. But I had been putting off... I read the first novel in Aftermath um, by mm-hmm. Chuck, Chuck Wendig and mm-hmm. didn't really enjoy it. I, I the, the narrative is very choppy. It jumps mm-hmm. between a lot of different places. Yep. And I've, it is written in... What was it? Second person or something? Like, wasn't it... It's written in a it, weird... It's written in present tense. Okay, that's what it is. Yeah, which is a... It, it's a weird uh, choice for a novel, mm. I think. Uh, yeah. So I, I didn't enjoy the first Aftermath book so much, but now, like, between this and some of the other ones, you know, we have met some of these characters... And mm-hmm. some of the plot points. And now I'm like, well, maybe I need to finish that because I need to know how this fits in to yeah, all I, of that. I think I would just, I just, uh, we actually did an, uh, uh, an episode on the Aftermath novels. And I think I would describe them similarly to how I describe the prequel movies a lot, which is like, I think they convey an awful lot of important information. That is that helps you to have a better under and a richer understanding of the Star Wars universe in terms of characters and events and what happened and the shape of the world. It's just not executed in a particularly well done way, uh, from my perspective. Other people love them, and that's great. But like to me, it's like you know, you sit down with a buddy, and the buddy has a story that like the, the buddy knows the story of something that happened that you really want to know all the details of, and your friend just isn't a very good storyteller. But it's worth listening to him to, like, get all the details of the story. Um, they're by no means my favorite book. I had to kind of make myself go back and, and read them. But I think espe- I, I think also, like, knowing where a lot of the other – who the other characters are going to be and where they wind up um, would make them a lot more helpful. Because, like, we, we learn a lot more about Wedge and the – in Bloodlines – Yeah, like, and in, um, uh, in Bloodline, you know, we met uh, Wedge's wife. Uh uh, how the the aftermath books tell the story of who she is and how they meet and their romance and stuff like that and and how her son 
where her son fits into all that. Uh, not Wex's, not Wedge's son. Wedge comes along much later, but like, uh, and, and it gives you some interesting portraits to, you know, what a lot of the other characters are doing at this time. I just, I, I think there's great story. There's great characters. There's great plot details. I just don't think they're very well written, but I, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I can agree. Like, I, again, I didn't like the narrative choice, but Chuck Wendig is like a good writer. So I, I think for me, it, it's just more like there's too much stuff. There's too many characters. There's yeah. too many plot points they're trying to tie together in like in just three novels, right? I, I guess that's what I mean by bad writing. Like to me, it was yeah. hard to keep going because like I would put it down for two days and then pick it back up. And then I'd be reading a story about something I actually hadn't read about for two weeks because it had happened like the last time we checked in with those characters was six chapters ago. Yeah. Because you're right. It's like, I mean, that, yeah. yeah, I think it's similar to when we talk about like um, disliking an actor's performance. Like sometimes it's not necessarily the actor. It's the director who's doing yeah. the directing and telling them to do these things. So it, I'm, I'm not sure. Like I haven't read enough uh, other Chuck Wendig novels, but my understanding mm -hmm. is that he has quite a portfolio. So it's like a little surprising. And I, I think it has more to do with like this whole like. Disney saying, all right, write three novels that gets us from A to B and like, yeah. do all of these things. It's like, that's too much. There's certainly, yeah, that may well be true. There's certainly other, there's certainly other Star Wars books that have the same problem of far too many plot lines. And so it may be, it may be that he's, a, I, did, I did not find the writing engaging is maybe the best way to say it. And, yeah. But certainly also a lot of people do. A lot of people think they're their favorite well, Star Wars novels. So I want to honor that as well. To me, Far and away, my favorite Star Wars novel novelists uh, write. Far and away, my favorite Star Wars authors these days are Claudia Gray and E.K. Johnson. I think what they're writing is just so much better than most of the other stuff that's out there. I have a final theory about Go what I it. think is wrong with Aftermath. When you say a lot of other Star Wars novels have like lots of plots going mm -hmm. on, right? The Legends novels always had Luke, Han, Leia, Chewie, 3PO, R2, Lando... Mm -hmm. And then, like, adds, like, three to four new characters, like Mara Jade, Talon Card, mm. uh, Corrin Horn, Wedge Antilles, right? They can do a lot of shortcutting in terms of character development and getting to know the characters. Because it's yep. Luke. We all know who Luke is. Like, they don't have yep. to tell us who Luke is. So I think part of the problem in Aftermath is that they are trying to introduce too many new characters to mm -hmm. fill in these gaps. I think and it's true. It's it's just not there's just not enough space yeah. for the plot and for the character development and something is suffering as a result. Yeah. I think it's I think it's a good way to put it. I think it's a good way to put it. And I, like I said, yeah, they're not I, I read all three. They weren't my favorite books, but I think they're not like I certainly read a lot worse, uh both within Star Wars and without. So but yeah. Um Ricky, I'm so glad you suggested this book uh and that we got to talk about it like this. Um for people who want to find more of the kind of stuff you're doing, where can they find you? Well, I have no idea anymore. Uh, in the past episodes, I've dropped a couple of places, but currently all of that is on hold. So, I don't know. Stay tuned, pay attention uh, to a future episode of Star Wars Universe Podcast where maybe I'll have a better idea of what I'm doing on social media anymore. Yeah, okay. That's totally legit. Totally fair. Um, of course, this is an Ethical Panda podcast. You can find all the ways to contact us by going to theethicalpanda.com. 
Uh, I have three pieces of feedback written down that I want to talk to Riki about, but we're out of time, but we will get to those next episode, I promise. Um, uh, but of course, all the ways to find us, get, send us feedback, send us your questions, send us your thoughts. I have had a couple of people who wanted to not be on the air, but I've responded to you privately. Love those messages as well. Please keep them coming in. And sometimes you'll hear me like reference the ideas you mentioned. If again, I have that permission from you. Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, all the ways you can find us. You can find that all on theethicalpanda.com. Of course, you can also support our Patreon. We're going to have a Patreon section in just a bit. For just five bucks a month, uh, you get access to ad-free videos, uh, sorry, ad-free episodes of both this and the Superhero Ethics Podcast. You get bonus Patreon content. And for now, until the strike ends, 25% of everything I get from Patreon is going to get donated directly to the Entertainers Fund that's helping sustain uh, people and families who are being affected by the strike with the Actors Union, the Writers Union, and all the other unions and, and non-union folks, like, you know, the pizza delivery guys and stuff like that, who are affected by these strikes. So, really hope you can support the podcast. Uh, if not, though, just, you know, share and like and let us know what you think and leave good reviews. Let people know about the, the episodes. And most importantly, know that we have spoken. All right, let's go into our Patreon section. So, Riki, I've loved getting to talk to you about some of your Star Wars, favorite Star Wars books. What are some of your favorite, like, you know, maybe within the genre or completely different, but for someone who's like, look, I'm watching less TV these days. I'm looking for some more stuff to read. Riki always has, like, good stuff he's talking about. What are two or three books you'd recommend to someone? Oh, gosh. Outside of Star Wars. Outside of Star Wars. What have I read recently? Um, I mean, right now I'm reading a biography on Bobby Kennedy. Ooh, I okay. Re- remember the name of it? Uh huh. But, but that's like you know, just you could read a lot of biographies. I, I'm just very interested in him as a human being, as a person, to learn mm-hmm. more because I I watched a documentary on him, and I'm like, what the heck? This this guy seems awesome. Yeah. And so far, like reading the biography, obviously it's going to be biased, but I'm like, yeah, okay, he is awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, does it mention ever that him like playing with his two year old son and saying, wow, my son's an idiot who's going to grow up to be an anti vaxxer? No. And okay. <laughs> that, that, is, that is another thread that I'm interested in, interested in following or like uh-huh. at least reading about, like finding out like what the heck happened. The thing is, like, he. Um, RFK Jr., I mean, we'll, we'll go on this tangent. RFK Jr. is very interested in environmental politics mm-hmm. um, and, like, very, like, social justice environmental politics, like how climate change affects the poor. Right. So that is not too far out of line with, with how I feel like Bobby Kennedy would would be interested in. Right. So you, you can draw these lines. Unfortunately, I think... There are also lines of conspiracy conspiracy theorism relating to the assassination of his father mm-hmm. and like believing that the CIA was involved somehow or something like that. Right. So yep. you I, I think I'm starting to see the threads of like the intersection of those things, like the mm-hmm. legacy of Kennedy, both as a activist and a politician, but also as a fallen assassinated hero. Right. Well, I can see that. And I mean, certainly we, we talk so much about the assassination of his of Bobby Kennedy's brother, you know, John F. Kennedy. 
Uh, but we very rarely talk about, you know, Sirhan Sirhan and the assassination of RFK and how that led to Hubert Humphrey getting elected and the Vietnam War continuing. And because Robert Kennedy was one of the ones who was running, uh, you know, to stop the Vietnam War uh, and all that. And, you know, it's a much well, more complicated yeah. situation. Hum but Humphrey, Humphrey got the Democratic nomination leading to Nixon being elected. Right. Oh, so yeah. Exactly. That's that's like super tragic from a, yeah. from a liberal standpoint. It's like, oh, yep. that's that's what happened because of, and you can understand like why people get sucked into conspiracies about that, because he he was like poised to be this unifying figure on the left in a lot right. of people's opinions. Yeah. Um, but that like I, I don't think too many people are interested in biographies. I, I recommended a book, I believe, to you on on twitter back when back when i was on that um the what was it called the kaiju preservation society oh yeah see this by, on my list by john scalzi uh scalzi of course has written a bunch of great sci-fi novels uh old man's war there's that's a series like three or four novels in the old man's war which are great mm -hmm. he also wrote uh red shirts which is a star trek like parody novel oh that's fun um and then yeah kaiju preservation society was uh, maybe his most recent one maybe not at this point but it was the most recent one i saw and i really enjoyed it um and when i recommended it to you i mentioned that it it it's written post coronavirus so it mm. writes the coronavirus into the story initially and I appreciate that. I appreciate that some writers acknowledge that this is a thing that happened. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you saw Glass Onion. Yeah, really, really that good. Does, that does the same thing. It's like, yes, like this, mm -hmm. this is pandemic. And then like they quickly extricate themselves from that, as does this novel. Mm -hmm. But uh, it adds a sense of realism. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I think and it's kai and it's kaiju. So maybe now, especially as you're watching the Gojira movies, you yeah, might, you might want to pick this novel back up. Um, I'm also reading a book. What is that called? Fledgling, I believe is the name. Octavia mm -hmm. Octavia Butler. Oh, I love her stuff. Yeah, it's a it's a vampire novel, and mm -hmm. I traditionally have not been a huge fan of vampire novels or like vampire fiction. I guess in, in any medium. Mm -hmm. And this one, like it, it's, it's, I'm slow to pick up on it because of a lot of the, it's, it's very sexy and, yeah. and I, I'm not too, too here for like the sexiness, especially like vampire sexiness. So mm -hmm. I'm working through it because it, it is well-written. Like the stuff other than that is, is good and I'm enjoying it, but nice. Nice. Um, yeah, other stuff, stuff that I've been reading recently, uh, some of it I've talked about on the podcast already. I've been rereading the uh, Discworld books by Terry Pratchett, who's, I think, just Rob McKenzie and I did an episode of that for Superhero Ethics. I think they're some of the best, like, they're just flat out hilariously funny. And if you want to turn your brain off, you can just read them as fun page turners. But also there's just biting, very deep social, uh, social commentary in them, uh, which is really powerful and very worth, worth a read. Uh, I think one of the best examples of, like, sneaking in social commentary in ways that's very clear, but also never feels preachy or like it's hitting you over the head with it, which is funny because it often is very much hitting you over the head with it, but it's just brilliantly done. For anybody who likes Good Omens, 
Uh, Terry, Terry Pratchett is the guy who wrote that in conjunction with Neil Gaiman. Uh, so those are very worthwhile. Um, I'm going to be doing, I'm rereading right now the Hunger Games novels because I'm going to be doing an episode on them uh, mm. with uh, Danielle, who's been on this podcast a bunch. We're going to talk specifically about those books. Um, you know, and that's, I think, just been kind of a fun thing in general is I don't want to talk about all these movies and TV shows, but some of them, so many of them are based on books that are really interesting to to read. So you might as well just keep, um, you know, keep looking at those. And then the last one, uh, hold on, let me just. The book was better. Yeah. <laughs> right? Classic trope. The, the book was better or you don't even have to compare the two, but like the book will often get a chance to go into far more detail in ways that I think are just really fascinating and really interesting. Um, yeah. So I think those are the two um, big ones I'd recommend. There's. Yeah. And I'll say that we're, I want to be reading more books. So also if you want to start sending me more book recommendations and stuff like that, uh, please do. You know how to find Molly, all the social medias. So Ricky, any last words from you on Lost Stars or books or Kaiju or anything else? Yes. Support your local library. Yeah. Because, I mean, I don't know about you, Matthew, but that's where I, I get most of my books is I just go down to the library and I check yep. them out. And uh, my library actually likes the email receipt it sends mm -hmm. me uh, for my checkouts. It tells me, like... You've saved X dollars this year. I presume, like, they're, like, basing it off of, like, if I had bought the books. Like, mm. So instead of buying the books, I got them from the library and I saved X dollars. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's it's a, it's a weird yeah. stat. That I would like that. I'd also say another thing for folks can do is um, if you want to have the book or if the book is going to be a little slower through library loans, sometimes they are, uh, but you want, don't want to support a big, huge corporate conglomeration – the website usedbookstore.com. Uh, basically, it's it's like Amazon in that you just type in the name of a book and pay some money and it'll be shipped to you. But instead of buying it like a new copy from Amazon or someone else like that, Barnes & Noble, or whatever, basically it's an entire network where if a used bookstore anywhere in the country has a copy of it, they will ship it to you. And they'll tell you exactly what condition it's in. You know, it'll often be used. So it'll be a lot cheaper. But most of them, you know, are in just perfectly good condition. They'll tell you if there's, like, any marks on it or things like that. If you don't want that, that's fine. Um, yeah, so it's a great thing. Oh, and I did remember the, the third book I wanted to recommend, which this one I would actually very much suggest getting as a pot, as a audio novel on, like, Audible or something like that. Because it was made to be, it was made to be, lit, it's basically like a, a, a six-hour podcast, but it was then also turned into a novel. And it's The Bomber Mafia by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, oh. I've, I've been getting very into World War II <laughs> and the decision-making of U.S. bomber uh. pilots and stuff like that. Um, and y you think about it, you said the bomber mafia, what it sounds like is this group of people who wanted to do all the, like the horrible firebombing and stuff like that. It's actually the opposite. It's about a group of, of bomber pilots and uh, Air Force strategy guys in the United States, both before and during World War II, who really wanted to do utter precision bombing no civilian casualties, just attack like the most absolutely needed resources to like end a war as fast as possible. And it was because of their perceived failures that the instead the allies moved towards the really horrific civilian attacking carpet bombing that destroyed cities in Germany and in Japan. And then, of course, led to the nuclear bombing. So it's a short read. It's a short listen The the audiobook has all sorts of interviews and stuff like that placed through it. It's called The Bomber Mafia by Malcolm Gladwell. 
And uh, Riki had a reaction, so I'll let him speak what he wanted to speak in reaction. I chuckled because Malcolm Malcolm Gladwell is a is an is an author I know well. Mm-hmm. I've read I don't know like six or so of his books. Mm-hmm. Of course, Out, Outliers is probably is, is that the one, or am I thinking of a different? I think it is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like. Is it okay if I if I, if I recommend a podcast? Sure, go for it. <laughs> so, I would highly recommend a podcast called "If Books Could Kill." Mm, okay. And it is the the tagline is something about like why why your favorite airport book is wrong or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, like Gladwell, like solidly fits into that category, right? Of airport books, like all over the shelves at, at those newsstands. And it's just like got a got a catchy like idea or title where it's like, oh yeah, I would like to be smarter or something, or to yeah. <laughs> learn more about this, you know, while I'm standing here waiting for my flight. Mm-hmm. And this podcast is all about debunking like some of the most famous of these these airport books. Um, mm-hmm. I think I don't remember if it's the first one they did, but it it's the one that they kind of based the whole idea off of uh, was Freakonomics. Mm, interesting. Okay. And and so like I I like Gladwell, like I enjoyed reading his books, mm-hmm. but uh I, I think it's important to balance out your diet. And yeah. the 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 two people, the journalists on this podcast do such a good job of debunking some of these ideas in in a fun way mm-hmm. that I, I think it's worth consuming consuming that as a as a balance yeah that makes sense I, I i don't know if they've done an episode on this specific book but now i'll definitely try to look for it and i think glad will be the first to say like he's trying to trace the history of ideas which is very difficult to do and there's probably some gross generalizations and maybe his conclusions are not as accurate as uh they come out to be but it's certainly an interesting uh, it's an interesting yeah. perspective and yeah i'd like to hear uh, a counterpoint to it so Sounds yeah good? i mean one one of the problems with these these people like these people like gladwell mm-hmm. As you said, like pursuing the history of ideas, right? Right. It's it's biased. Like it's inherently biased by who he is and like who, who mm-hmm. he has been and like how he has lived his life. And that's not wrong. Like we are all biased. Like you and right. I are biased in our conversations about Star Wars. Like For sure. we we, sh- we sure bring up uh, atomic bombs a lot, but that that's like very much like a part of who I am and how I perceive a lot of these like war stories or like mass destruction, you know, weapons of mass destruction stories. That's, that's what I bring to the table. And I think it's very disingenuous for people like Gladwell to pretend like they are objective. And that's a hundred percent like what they try to do in these novels. Like this is the truth. So I would say, I don't know. I can't speak for any of those books in this book is 100% not the case. He starts out with his own history of listening to his father, who would like who lived through the Blitz, uh, the 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 fire the, the the who lived through the Blitz, the attacks on London by the Luftwaffe, the German uh, Air Force, uh, uh, in World War Two, and he talks about himself having a very specific bias and that he's trying to be aware of that, uh, and it's part of why he wanted to do it as this audio, uh, sort of format where he's often playing for you the interviews rather than him just sort of cherry picking quotes out of them. And he still 
cherry picking what parts of the interview he plays. Okay, yeah. But yeah. I think he is trying to, and, and maybe it's because one or two of his other books got ripped apart by a podcast like that. I don't know. But yeah, maybe. certainly in, in this, he's, good. Ve- he's very clear about what his perspective is. And that's something that I really like. Okay. That's fair enough. Like the thing, the thing, the the one thing that sticks in my mind about when they did one of his novels is that Uh there's a section about pilots and why planes crash, like why pilots crash planes, you know, not on purpose, but you know, what, what are the circumstances that lead to it? And Gladwell cites this fact, this figure of like X numbers of crashes in the past, you know, Y years were by South Korean pilots. Why is that? And he reaches like some ludicrous racist conclusion. That's unfortunate. And then, and then the 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 journalists of the podcast like did the research mm-hmm. on the South Korean crashes, and they're like, "Well, three of them were shot down by missiles because <laughs> North Korea." Yeah, it's like that's not their fault. And I'm pretty sure at least one was shot down by Americans. Like, but oh, yeah, possibly, yeah, yeah. In, but they're like, in a very highly militarized part a, of the world. A very like significant number of the quote unquote crashes were actually shot down. So, right. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So, yeah, I can't speak to that about this book. Uh, I'll definitely look for that episode, but it's worth checking out. So, Ricky, thank you so much for being a part of this. To all of our listeners, thank you all so much. You patrons, you're what makes this possible. We have spoken. Recording.